0: A Podcast One production.
1: Welcome to Ag Reminders. G'day, I'm Chris Russell, and as we explore the conundrum that there will be more food eaten in the next 50 years than has been eaten in the entire history of humanity, and we only know how to produce 30% of that currently water is clearly a critical factor. Our first episode discussed global challenges and conflicts around water with global water strategist Dr David Mickle. Now it's time to focus on Australia. Any useful water strategy in Australia clearly has to focus on not just the average but the extremes that we have and will always see in the future with regards to our water. Australia is the second driest country on earth But he's constantly plagued by the drought and flooding rains which have frequently devastated Australian food and fibre production for the last 40,000 years. Without a carefully managed water strategy, crops will not grow, animals will die and the environment will be changed forever. So in this episode, we'll focus on the use of surface water for agriculture in Australia. Now, inevitably, this requires a close look at the Murray-Darling Basin and the irrigation water that is reliably available to even out the supply between the flooding rain events and over the inevitable droughts. The tension between water use for agriculture and the demands of the environment and communities of four states has been the source of much debate and much conflict going right back to Federation. Indeed, the first discussions between the states on the Murray-Darling system occurred in 1917, and yet it's not until 2012 that we achieved an effective compromise as to how the available water would be allocated between the environment, agricultural irrigation and community use. It would be fair to say that up to that time, the irrigation water taken from the Murray-Darling for various uses throughout the river basin exceeded the available flows. This was finally corrected with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which sought to analyse how much water was available, how much would be put into the environment and how much would be available for irrigated agricultural production. The underlying assumptions of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is that the first priority is for water for essential supplies for drinking and personal use for all the communities along the rivers. Then comes the water to reasonably sustain our environmental wetlands. Then what is left we can use for irrigating crops and pastures to supplement rain in otherwise fertile agricultural lands? This includes water for valued enterprises like the wine industry of the Barossa, and indeed the highly lucrative cotton industry. So in this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Steve Wan, a former Minister for Primary Industry and Shadow Spokesman for Rural Water in New South Wales, and currently the CEO of the National Irrigators Council. And he will help us understand the management of the irrigation water from this system. Welcome, Steve.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: So, Steve, um, you were actually involved in the government at the time when a lot of this was going on. Um, How how was the reaction of the states to suddenly having other states more or less telling them what water they could have and not have?
0: Well, I I think, to be fair, and and you're right about the long history of the Murray-Darling Basin arguments, there was a bit of suspicion. There was a willingness to cooperate and try and make it work, which was obviously critical because the plan is a, um, a cooperative arrangement between the Basin states. It's one which uh, was negotiated. It was a, a compromise in a lot of ways, but certainly while it was being thought about and put in place, it caused quite a lot of concern for communities who are involved and uh perhaps people might remember back to uh the the plan being burnt in some towns uh there was uh, at government level concern about whether or not socio-economic impacts were going to be dealt with whether there needed to be structural adjustment and a whole range of things like that but it was an opportunity to solve a an argument which had essentially been going for around 110 years with uh south australia who of course started off wanting a river that they could navigate for produce and then wanting water supply from the river we then had the development of the irrigation industry in victoria and south australia and then in new south wales and uh, over the years of course the resource became stretched and when you had a period of drought like the millennium drought that became particularly apparent and that's why we saw that national action
1: And I guess some of your parliamentary colleagues might think you went to the Dark side when you became the uh, CEO of the National Irrigators' Council, but has this given you a different perspective perhaps from the one you had when you were the Minister?
0: It's certainly given me a much more detailed perspective on the basin plan and yes, I I suspect that um, some of my former colleagues would go, actually I don't think many of them would be surprised because I was always interested in rural communities and the future of rural communities and in primary production. So uh, I think it's consistent in that respect, but it does mean that you uh, don't always agree with your former colleagues, particularly those from the city.
1: So, Steve, there were two parts of this plan. There was a part of the plan where the government was going to buy back a maximum of 1,500 gigalitres, which I think was actually legislated as an amount. And then there was the second part of the plan where they were going to achieve the remaining 1,250 gigalitres by uh, almost subsidising farmers to put in infrastructure changes that would reduce wastage and then giving that saved wastage back to the government again. Um I guess we've sort of come through now, I think we're sitting at about 2,090 gigalitres now that's been saved. I guess all the low-hanging fruit's being had. Firstly, what damage has been done by the buyback? Because I hear a lot of sad stories from places like Burke and, and Cootamundra and places like that.
0: Well, buyback certainly had a very uh, strong impact in some communities and in the northern basin communities, places like Weewar and uh, St George, Moree, there was very definite job losses and downturns in the economies of those communities by buybacks of water. The Murray-Darling Basin Authority has actually done some quite detailed uh, research on the impact in the across the basin, actually just recently has released the uh, the community profiles for the southern basin so uh, the communities what we have seen across the basin is a mixed impact of the basin plan in those communities where most of the water came from buyback they've certainly had a serious impact on employment and they've seen downturns in economic activity in communities where the investment has been in efficiency and infrastructure and that's off-farm and on-farm so it's things like uh yeah, the the Colliambie Irrigation Scheme, which invested in modernising its entire system, it's all uh, it's all computer controlled, it's all um, telemetrically measured and metered. Uh, places like Murrumbidgee have done the same thing. In those areas, we've seen far less negative impact, and in fact, we're seeing some expansion of production with less water, which I think most Australians would probably say was a really good objective to try and meet. Uh, And what it's shown is that the Basin Plan has had very mixed impacts in communities. Some have been very negative and uh, some have, have been able to work with it and achieve more production.
1: So we're going to talk to the former CEO of Cobley Amberley Water, um, who was actually responsible for a lot of that implementation. But I think that if the average punter in the pub would probably think that putting some more and more water back into the environment w- was a given, was something that they would like to see happen. But the controversy, I gather, came more out of the fact that a lot of that buyback was done by um, Penny Wong and that government at the time when we were in the worst drought we'd seen since Federation almost – and therefore they were preying on desperate farmers this their words uh, were well the farmers words not mine preying on desperate farmers who you know had no alternative really but to get some more money in to survive and the only way they could do that was sell their only asset that was worth anything which was water and that this was sort of used to advantage to take whole communities out of the system and of course, all the runoff people who, who lived off those communities um, suffered as well. Um, and that still seems to be a hurt that a lot of farmers are feeling. Do you feel that's something that was worth the pain? Or do you think we could have done more with infrastructure work?
0: Well, I suspect that the Basin Plan probably wouldn't have achieved its, uh, its targets without some buyback, uh, buyback does have negative impacts and and that is something which needed to be taken into I think greater account. Uh, In many cases they're willing sellers, in in some cases you found farmers who survived the last drought by selling water but uh, often they were pushed to do that to reduce their debt levels by their banks as well. Uh, So there's there's probably a real mix of people who found that to be a positive experience and some who found it to be very negative. And yes, you're absolutely right in saying you, you will visit some smaller communities, particularly around the basin, where there is a high level of resentment still for the amount of water that was brought back. I guess from the point of view of where I sit now with the National Irrigators Council, we know we can't turn the clock back on those things. So what we do now is we work to try and ensure that meeting the rest of the basin plan targets happens with no negative impacts to communities and and leaving us with a a genuine outcome which sees the the basin plan when it was put in place had had an ambition of um, not being it's not about being uh, restoring the river to its original condition pre-european condition it's about having a river system which is uh, healthy uh, environmentally healthy and irrigators support that as well because we live near rivers and we depend on the rivers but it's also about having healthy communities and the continuing capacity to produce the food that people in Australia love to consume uh, that we export to the world and the fibre that we consume and export so that's a really difficult balance and it has caused a fair bit of grief to communities Uh, still causes a lot of angst whenever people worry about future buybacks or or whether or not um, governments might re-enter the market at what sort of price so you know it's an incredibly complex thing but has caused some grief for a lot of people but was there an alternative hard to tell
1: And, Steve, um, now that the buybacks are done and and I think they've reached their limit on that, so we're now totally dependent on infrastructure improvements for the last 700-odd gigalitres, let alone the wish list of another 450. I think they call that the upwater, but, I mean, really that's just a a hope that we might be able to save another 450. Is that realistic or is, is, I mean, I guess all the low-hanging fruit's probably been done. Um, Are we going to get the last 750 or is that going to be a battle?
0: Look, the the low hanging fruit, the easy stuff, has certainly happened. But uh, there's there's a, a I apologise in advance. A fairly complex answer to this. The the recent agreement between the federal government and the opposition has actually seen states committing to trying to achieve that up water that you mentioned, the 450 gigalitres. Now we've also seen. Uh, A change to the plan which was envisaged when it was first put in place to allow us to get up to the 2750 with what's called sustainable diversion limit adjustment measures and those are um, infrastructure projects and other projects which will deliver water to the environment more effectively so it's things like um, uh, piping water to a wetland rather than having to have an overland flow or uh, saving water from evaporation in the Menindee Lakes These are things, projects which governments are going to be looking at now to try and deliver water to the environment more effectively, and in exchange for that, irrigators won't have to give up 605 gigalitres of water to get up to the 2750 target. So we're now engaging with government to try and make sure those projects work because the risk lies with irrigators. If those projects don't deliver 605 gigalitres of water the government actually in its legislation is obliged to come back and obtain that water from irrigators. So um, there's still some dangers in this and uh, some really critical work that has to be undertaken to actually make sure these projects are delivered.
1: My understanding is there was going to be no compulsory acquisition. Are you saying that potentially if the target isn't met there could be compulsory acquisition of water from these farmers?
0: Yes I am and, uh, and it, it is a it is a danger that we look out for. The legislation to cap the amount of water that was able to be purchased is, is there. Uh, at the moment, a federal government could not go out and uh, purchase water, but in the future, if uh, the basin plan targets are not met, that legislation essentially uh, can expire and government can go back into the market. So it's really critical that irrigators, communities, state governments, local governments, environmental groups I hope as well, engage in making sure that those uh, projects that I mentioned before, things like delivering water better to a wetland or uh, measuring the way that water is delivered better, that they actually work and that they actually deliver the outcomes.
1: So, Steve, can I move to South Australia? Um, and its a, I always think South Australia is a little bit like Egypt and, and the rest of New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland are a bit like Ethiopia. Uh, and I know that Ethiopia is currently building the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam up there and they've announced that they're going to fill that dam over two years, which means that there'd be no water going down the Nile to Egypt, where 97% of their production comes off the Nile um, for, until that dam was full. And, of course... Egypt's response was, the day you do that, we'll put a missile right through the middle of the dam gates. Um, now, Adelaide and, and South Australia has always been a little bit like that. They just get whatever we choose to give them. I'm saying we in the eastern states' point of view. Um, and yet, in my view, what they're protecting down there is surely arguable in regards the mouth of the Murray, where instead of being a natural saltwater estuary, as it was for thousands and thousands, well forever, before a white man came and then in of course 1920s they put these artificial um, gates across the front which are known as the barrages and that stops the fresh water from leaving and also stops the salt water from entering Uh, And since that time, they've maintained that what is normally an estuary as a freshwater lake. And being so shallow, and I mean, I've had my own boat on it, and, and you know, there's parts of it you can't even navigate over. It's really just a massive evaporation pond. I wonder why they're so fanatic about maintaining that because would it make a big difference to tourism? And in any case, from a national perspective, is it worth actually putting all that water down the river and not using it for productive purposes just to have it evaporated off in a big evaporation pond that's been artificially created at the mouth?
0: Well, I I think I and and most irrigators would certainly like to see uh, the South Australian government take seriously the evaporation loss from the... Um, lower lakes. Now, at one stage, the lower lakes were fairly were critical for freshwater supplies for a lot of the communities around there. But during the last drought, they actually put a pipeline around to many of those communities. So there is um, the scope, I think, to reduce the amount of um, evaporation from that lake, whether that's through engineering works but it's almost uh, a bit of an article of faith for South Australians that they have to keep these lakes, and uh, it really is a bit frustrating when you hear discussions of the health of the Coorong, for example, where they fail to acknowledge that they have built this artificial barrage across it, and and that that has to be impacting the quality of the water in the Coorong. Uh, that is frustrating for everyone, I think. But you know, South Australia is obviously has some very legitimate interest in the water and and it needs to be very clear that Adelaide's water supply has always been guaranteed by the arrangements um, before the basin plan and by the basin plan uh, in fact there is irrigators in South Australia who would probably like to see Adelaide do a bit more to actually save water itself uh, there is proposals out there for example to investigate using their desale plant more to return water to the uh, the, Mur- the the Murray and, and of course uh, South Australia has an absolutely vital irrigation sector. Uh, this famous South Australian wine industry wouldn't exist without irrigation from the Murray, and it, it's critical that uh, that those interests are taken into account by governments in South Australia, and not just. Um, as we have, I think, seen in par- in the past and, and hopefully not so much now with a new government in South Australia, but we've certainly seen uh, appeals really to South- to Adelaide voters rather than appeals to the interests of the state as a whole.
1: But do they argue that it should remain as a lake and not be an estuary as it was? I and Given that the, the Morgan freshwater supply for Adelaide is protected by another weir at Morgan, so it's nothing to do with that. I just don't understand the argument for maintaining those as freshwater lakes, particularly now that they've piped water around to Gawler and all those uh, surrounding towns. You know that they are now independent of that freshwater.
0: Yeah, look, I'm I'm with you on that. It's uh, it's it's hard for me to understand why they are so determined to keep them in the current uh, condition and at a consistent level because. Uh, Nature would tell you and estuaries right around Australia would tell you that when you have a a decent tidal flow inflow and outflow you don't have any trouble for most of the time in keeping the mouth open for example and you have uh, a greater turnover of water and yes you have varying levels and uh, that's not an unhealthy thing uh, but I've um, raised this issue with people there and uh, you get pretty short shrift, unfortunately. So in many respects, my efforts now with the National Irrigators Council are directed on the things which we might be able to influence rather than the things where people seem to have a fixed view.
1: That's a very pragmatic view. Well, on that note, Steve, thank you very much for giving us such a comprehensive background of the scheme. Uh, We're going to now hear from John Cullerton, who's been right at the leading edge of implementing those infrastructure savings Uh, and we really appreciate your input to AgriMinders.
0: That's a pleasure.
1: Shortly, we'll hear from our next AgriMinder, John Cullerton. Our next AgriMinder is John Cullerton. John is the former CEO of Colliambly Water. That authority is arguably the finest example of highly efficient irrigation water management, not just in Australia, but globally. John has come from the ideal training ground to lead an organisation like Colliambly Water. In his prior life, he's been a tough, pragmatic colonel in the Australian Army. He was highly respected for his ability to cut through bureaucracy and inspire both his soldiers and contrary politicians to successfully develop strategy. He also completed missions in an international environment, including a number of years based in New York in the political cauldron we call the United Nations. Colliamberly is a town specifically built in 1968 to manage irrigation within the Murray Darling system. The agriculture around Colliamberly wouldn't exist without the irrigation water being managed by Colliamberly Water as part of the Murray Darling Basin Plan. Without doubt, The Murray-Darling Basin Plan is critical in resolving our 50-year food security target. The plan had two key elements for irrigated agriculture. Firstly, the buying back of water entitlements from irrigators by the government and returning that water to the environment. Secondly, the upgrading of water distribution systems to improve the efficiency of use of irrigation water and reduce water wastage to an absolute minimum. This last factor was a cooperative agreement between irrigation farmers and the government for the funding of these upgrades and then for the sharing of the saved water equally between the environment and the farmers. Colliamberly Water committed to this task with determination and energy under John's leadership. So to discuss the efficiency and the achievements of Colliambly Water so far, and the savings still to be achieved, we're delighted to welcome John Cullerton. So, John, we've, I've just been speaking to Steve Wan, who is the CEO of the Irrigators Council, and we were talking about the effect that the desire to keep the freshwater lakes at the mouth of the Murray has had on the amount of water that's being pushed down into South Australia by New South Wales uh, and obviously indirectly Queensland and Victoria. Um, What's your view about that? Is that a frustration for the industry that we still keep maintaining this idea that those artificial barrages uh, that stop that being an estuary are maintained and that we're constantly pouring water in there, really effectively a big evaporation pan? Um, Chris, uh, you know, I
2: was aware that it was a very strong frustration uh, across the irrigation industry, but you mentioned uh, in the introduction that I'm a fairly pragmatic person. Uh, I listened to all of the arguments around whether the lakes were freshwater lakes or whether they were estuarine lakes, and and I noted that the scientific opinion was divi- scientific opinion on that was divided. Um, I, I just formed the view that um, there was nothing to be gained by pursuing that. That that was a matter of high level politics, and and I focused on um, trying to secure a basin plan that. Um, that was realisable, not not something that uh, was going to deal with um, uh,
1: targets that were either never going to be hit or never knocked over if you did hit them. So w- when you came now, Collie Amberley, of course, uh, was wasn't didn't even exist prior to 1968, and then in 1968 they built Collie Amberley really around being an irrigation town, a town that relied on the irrigation scheme for its very existence. Um, and within that, of course, the uh, the Colliambly Water Authority, which you then became CEO of. Um, so they then took the forefront, if you like, of this time when it was started to decide to make infrastructure one of the key ways that they're going to actually claw back water to put back into the into the Murray-Darling system. Of course they've got their 1500 gigs of buyback. that was controversial. But then when it came to the infrastructure, my understanding is that Collie Amberley was probably one of the fastest working and most enthusiastic adopters of that whole policy of of making better infrastructure so that we could actually save water and then give back that back to the environment.
2: Well, in fact, Chris, um, the the modernisation of Colliambly irrigation system started well before um, the Basin Plan, uh, you know, before the Basin Plan even started to evolve. So basically in 99 um, or thereabouts, uh, the Colliambly farmers signed up to a land and water management plan, which meant that they made a very strong commitment to um, improve land and water management practices on their farm. And so it was pretty obvious that when they made that commitment and they started to implement those things, something had to change in respect of the delivery system itself. So around 2002, 2003, the board took a pretty courageous decision at the time to, to, to run a pilot, to introduce a brand new Australian piece of uh, technology called Total Channel Control. And in reality, that that technology was probably a little bit ahead of its time and not fully mature. So, so we, you know, we broke new ground, but it was a tough battle. But subsequently when the bugs were ironed out, uh, it was clear that that was the way to go. And uh, what so, was total channel control? Well, basically total channel control was taking, um, a, a manually operated system and automating it. So rather than having people running around the length and breadth of, a, of a system, which covers, um, nearly 1300 kilometers when you're taking the drainage uh, and pulling out um, pulling out physical blocks to the passage of water, it was about automating all of that right down to farm level. So basically, fully automated, computer controlled, uh, with degrees of regulation and flow control and and measurement uh, metering that you know hitherto had been unknown in Australia. And how did that save water? Well, basically, we ha- we had um, in effect uh, an open system at the bottom. You know, so as as water was used on farm and 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 uh, uh, excess water was um, drained off into our irrigation system, it then found its way into our drainage system, and basically ran out into the river. So water that we were paying for as a company uh, was being returned to, for somebody else's purposes, but not not for us. So we we had to we had to basically make the system a closed system, uh, and in doing that, we were able to save to cut our operational losses by um, nearly 70%. And subsequently, we're, subsequently, we refined that down even more.
1: So was there a net saving in water, though, in terms of the environment receiving more water? Um, you say the water used to go through and flow back into the river anyway. Did you find that um, it actually, because of the leaks and whatever, that you actually saved a lot of water in total over and above what you normally got back? We, we saved uh,
2: about 65,000 megalitres a year, as a result of this.
1: Oh, that's a lot We also were
2: able to provide our farmers with um, two-hour water ordering when prior to that, you know, um, they were on two-day water ordering. Uh, So we were able to provide them levels of the capacity to water, uh, to irrigate much more rapidly across their farms, which is more water efficient in and of itself. So it was a quantum leap forward.
1: So I also understand that in some cases you've got moisture monitors that are actually placing the water orders. Uh, no, we we actually what we did
2: was we installed a series of weather stations uh, and encouraged the adoption of soil moisture probes, and the aim was to integrate all of that and uh, and and integrate that with our total channel control system, so that we had a much more refined um, understanding of water use, which would then allow us to appreciate what demands we needed to place. On state water, well now water New South Wales, to supply us as a company. So what we were hoping to do was, rather than uh, hoping to run the whole system a lot leaner, rather than having excess water in our system, which might be evaporating, but excess because we were over-insuring against customer demand, we could we could better understand customer demand. The farmers themselves could better understand their 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 crop need, and all of that would be um, packaged together in an integrated system. Now, at the time, uh, some of that worked and some of it didn't work. Um, some of it was well ahead of its time. And whenever you try and bolt together different technologies, as much as, the, as much of the markets of those technologies will tell you that, you know, the integration will be seamless. The reality is that it's not. So some of it worked and some of it didn't work. But increasingly, those things are now coming into their own and, and they're becoming mainstream.
1: So how much room is there at Collie Amberley or even generally for more savings to be made by even more infrastructure improvements? Are there any other glaring examples of water losses that we can, we can plug? Um irrigation is always looking for the, the
2: next technological leap forward, the next opportunity. It's determined to stay at the forefront, um, but uh, there's nothing immediately in prospect. There are things that are being worked on um, but they're still not um, things that are going to realize significant benefits. And part of your challenge is, um, uh, you, know, you, you run the risk of gold plating a system. You, 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 you have a, a world-class system already, uh, but if you, if you try and extend that and take on more uh, technology, it comes at a cost. And so we've got to consider the cost of any further advance or colonel irrigation's got to consider the cost of any further advances against the benefits from that. And, and at the end of the day, it's a company owned by its customers. It's a it's a cooperative. So its its owners are its customers. And so it's got to do these sorts of um, leaps forward in concert with its customers. And, and it's got to take into account, you know, their on-farm circumstance and whether or not this is going to produce a net benefit to them.
1: So where is the next 600-odd? Uh, gigaliters going to come from
2: uh, the the remaining target is in fact the upwater, 450 gigaliters of upwater. But we're not and quite at the he's... 2750 yet, are we? Uh no. We're with the 650 adjustment. Uh, with the sorry, with the 605 gigalitre uh, adjustment has just been passed by Parliament, and the likelihood that um, there will be a adjustment in the Northern Basin of about 70 gigaliters. Um, we're there. Um, we're all but 62 gigalitres, which we think, which we understand from a ministerial announcement in um, in recent weeks, is that that's likely to come from um, from urban water sources.
1: Okay, so we're now we're now on the upwater stage then, which was always a bit Correct. of a, a pie in the sky, wasn't it? Well,
2: it's not a pie in the sky in terms of um, some of the basin states because they've had to sign up to it. Uh, the, the key issue there is um, the the recovery of that water is predicated on a condition written into the agreement that it can only occur in soci- in ways which are at a minimum socially and economically neutral um, and so that's a that's quite a quite quite a, a a reasonable barrier it's the interpretation of socially and economically neutral that is currently um you know the center of a bit of a bit of to and fro between industry, basin communities and government.
1: So Steve had some concern that there might be some compulsory acquisition um, involved in getting that last water. Is that is that uh, a possibility in your view?
2: Uh, look, the basin plan is an incredibly complex um, legal document that provides for a whole series of default arrangements. Um, basically, if they can't, can't generate the efficiencies under the under the under the the, uh, the the works and measures the 605 gigalitre package, or if they can't, um, you know, if they can't secure the upwater through normal market mechanisms or some other mechanism, um, there are there are default arrangements. Now, I'm not sure that the Commonwealth government uh, wants to start wants to be in the game of compulsory water acquisition. Um, and uh, and I certainly uh, think that um, at least three of the Basin states would have a very strong view on that as well.
1: So if I'm understanding what you're saying is that of the 2750 original figure, we've achieved about 2100. There's been about a 600 gigalitre adjustment um, by the government of what they're expecting And so now we're up to effectively the end of that program and we're now looking for the next uh, bonus amount of 450 gigalitres. Is that right? Correct. And uh, it appears that about 70 gigs of that will come out of urban water.
2: Uh, So, you know, that 450 is already reducing.
1: And was that adjustment because they suddenly decided the figures were wrong to start with or was it because they've decided that the irrigators, you know, were getting too big a bad a deal or what was the reason for that? The are uh, you
2: talking about the, the, the
1: six hundred and fifty gig?
2: Yeah. Uh, the the six the six hundred and fifty initially. Oh, I mean that 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 came about uh, via an argument initially raised by the irrigation industry, which said that there are smarter ways to recover water, and you can achieve the same effects in other ways through modernising infrastructure, modernising delivery systems, through tweaking of of operating rules. Um, and, 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 there was a lot of resistance to that argument, but eventually, um, the argument was accepted and written into the basin plan. And the important thing about that, that particular element of the basin plan is that it has to bring about the same results, the same environmental results, environmental equivalence. Um, so the, the, you know, in accepting that, the, the basin states are now under, under an obligation to deliver those works and measures, to make those adjustments, and and to be prepared to see them tested um, so that that level of environmental equivalence is met.
1: Mm. Well, can we turn to crops now? Because, um, you know, we grow a lot of very apparently water-thirsty crops. Now, I know that um, we've been outstanding in the way we've reduced the amount of water, for example, we use on cotton, We've, we've cut that water from something like 4,600 litres per kilo down to something over 2,000 litres per kilo. Um, why do people grow cotton and rice and these sort of crops uh, given that they're very water-hungry water, hung- uh, water hungry and yet we live in the second driest continent in the world with the only drier one being Antarctica? Um, <laughs> Chris, it- there's a, there's a lot of
2: um, mythology and, and hype around this particular issue. I mean, the facts are that the farmers have purchased water entitlement and they have secured a property right. So the water entitlement that they've purchased over time comes with exactly the same right as, as, as for instance, ownership of a house does. It comes with the right for you for a farmer to be able to sell that water or to be able to lease it or to be able to rent it out in the same way that you as a property owner can sell your house lease it rent it do whatever you like so they have a right the amount of water that they actually get on that right is entirely dependent on two things how much water is in the dams that's a, and that's a byproduct of nature and a water sharing plan for each catchment which says what happens when there are shortages of water what are the priorities and so there are clear priorities written into those environmental plans and environment features very highly so at the end of the day you take into account how much entitlement a farmer has how much allocation he he or she actually gets as a result of water storages in the dam and the water sharing plan and then that farmer has to make a commercial decision as to what they're going to do with their water now, if they, spend, if they um, expend 1,000 megalitres of water on producing a cotton crop or a rice crop or a carrot crop, uh, it's irrelevant. 1,000 megalitres of water has been expended. Um, it's a commercial decision. And, you know, coincidentally, um, some years ago, there was a very detailed study into the distribution of um, agriculture across Australia and the use of water... And at that time, uh, the finding was basically the farmers had got it right. What they were doing was quite logical. Uh, they had made logical decisions around the demand for their product, around the, the potential yield that they were going to get uh, for the inputs they put in, including the water, and they'd basically got it right. So, so you know, the, a 1,000 megalitres spent on producing a cotton crop or a 1,000 megaliters spent on producing a rice crop or a thousand megalitres spent on growing nuts or anything else is a thousand megalitres so that's the first thing i need to sort of establish the second thing is we're world class in our water use we produce a rice crop in australia with a bit, with a, about half the amount of water you know uh, to produce the same rice crop elsewhere in the world we're world class that's why you know in collier irrigation for instance there isn't a month to go by where they don't get some kind of visiting delegation to look at their system. So it's not like farmers are poor users of water and it's not like they've made poor decisions as to what to do with that water. Um, what's certainly happening is as the water, as the, the, the overall supply of water for, that can be committed to agricultural purposes shrinks, um, you see increasing competition for that water amongst the farmers and changes in 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 crop you know they'll move to a different crop because if they have to go into the market to buy more water the the market um, the market prices the the supply and demand equation is a new one and that forces them to rethink about whether they're going to grow you know the crop, the crop they've always grown or whether they're going to move to a new crop it's all rational
1: yeah i i mean i'm sure that that uh, ozcot Grow cotton because that's the way they make the most money out of water. I guess that's the point you're making. Correct. Uh, and they're not in a charity of just producing cotton because they love cotton. I think that's dead right. The, the illusion is because people see the amount of water and particularly in rice they see the amount of water that the average punter driving through is going to say, well, you know, we've got all that water sitting in a bit of a pond evaporating away. Um, what steps have we taken in Australia with rice, for example, to reduce water losses That we and how come we are so much more efficient than the rest of Asia and in our water usage for rice? Look, the the rice industry has been really proactive.
2: It's looked to its breeding programs to produce varieties of rice that will that will grow more quickly and therefore use less water. It's um, looking to produce rice crops that are more suitable to changing changing market demands. So you know, if a farmer has traditionally grown a variety of rice, but it's it's not going to provide the return uh, into the future because the market you know, is demanding sushi rice or it's demanding an exotic rice, a jasmine or about, you know, all of that is a subject of intense investigation, a lot, which is ultimately reflected in rice breeding programs. And we, we're world-class at rice breeding. Um, it, it's, the farmers are changing their layouts. The layouts on their, you know, on their properties are fundamentally different from what they used to be. Um, there's been a move to, you know, people are, are sowing differently, they're harvesting differently, they've got improved metering, uh, they've got soil moisture probes. So this thing has been attacked on a variety of levels, not just one.
1: John, it's been great to have you uh, to bring us that, that coal-faced view, if you like, of uh, irrigators and the water industry. Um, we wish you well and uh, thank you for joining us on AgriMinders. Thanks very much, Chris, and thank
2: you for uh, giving the irrigation industry an opportunity to talk about these things
1: because that's half the battle. Our two AgriMinders in this episode have responded with commitment and vigour in order to achieve the agreed targets. But clearly, there is discomfort, uncertainty, and questions remaining in the irrigation community. Were the environmental water targets reasonable? Is it realistic to achieve yet another Sydney Harbour's worth of savings each year for the environment? What if we don't achieve the additional savings? And how successful have we really been at increasing efficiencies in the use of additional environmental water flows? These have been brought back by governments at the expense of irrigation communities, or donated back to the river by irrigators by the expenditure of large capital amounts on more efficient infrastructure? Is investment in water harvesting worth it? What about more dams on rivers which, when in flood, pour the entire savings targeted in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan out into the sea every 19 hours? Is our irrigation water in Australia best used on crops like cotton and rice? To address these questions in our next episode, we'll go straight to the top, and the ultimate authority for implementation of water strategy in the Murray-Darling Basin, the chair of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, the Honourable Neil Andrew AO. Join us again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.